0: This morning was difficult. It was hard to go to church. It felt more like a burden, less like a joy. It was everything I could do to put one step in front of the other. And I find myself feeling I don't want to be here. You ever feel like that? Now, it wasn't really like that for me. It was like that for one reason, because I brought this pack, right? And so physically, it was a little hard. I've got a nice, heavy pack in here, and it changed this morning for me, putting this in my truck. almost felt like I threw out my back, trying to put it in the back of my my pickup bed. But sometimes we really feel like that, Right? man, this is a burden. Uh, you know, I, do I really want to come to church and be known? Do I really want to go to my community group where it's harder to hide things? Sometimes we think about serving Jesus and that word burden, right? That word burden, a joyless task. And I think about that as well. Have you ever had seasons of life where it feels like the joy is just sucked out? It's absent. It's gone. I think we all can, can relate to that. You know, this morning, um, there's no better illustration of that burden than an actual burden that we can carry around. Are you wondering what I have in here? This morning, we're talking about guilt. And guilt can be one of the greatest joy suckers, one of the greatest burdens that we will carry. And I have bricks in my my pack, and I want you to think about the kind of guilt that you and I can carry around. We can carry around false guilt. Maybe you feel like someone has framed your life in a sentence, in a word. I'm going to share with you right right at the beginning, there's one word, there's one phrase, I guess, that has sucked joy out of so many things, a void of leadership. When someone spoke that over my life this year, it was like putting a brick in my backpack. Things that I regularly enjoyed and loved, I began to question and feel insecure about. Maybe you have false guilt. Maybe a family member, maybe, maybe someone at work, maybe a boss has put false guilt on you. Maybe there's real guilt where we truly have failed. I was sharing with some pastors Four weeks ago, uh, about two decisions I made during COVID that I wish I would have done a little differently, and I think they might have actually hurt our church, and I wish I could have taken them back, right? But but I've also got lots of real clear failures that I can point to. You know, I said that word too quickly. That was rash. That was harsh. It was wrong. I need to ask for forgiveness, right? True guilt. We don't always confess it. Sometimes we just carry it around. Maybe it's an experience that you have in your family history that's still with you. It's on your shoulders. What is it? What is it? This morning, what guilt, what condemnation, whether it's right, whether it's wrong, whether it's from the Bible or whether it's from Satan, are you carrying around this morning? Here's what I want to share with you, that God did not create us in his image to carry around bricks of guilt, whether true guilt or false guilt. And this morning is going to be a challenge to look into your own backpack That we carry around with us every moment of every day. That we sleep with and keeps us up at night. That wakes us up with worry and concerns and fear. What brick are you carrying around? God did not make us to carry these. It's amazing. Um, These uh, came off my house uh, uh, a year ago. Or I guess last summer. And it's amazing. I piled them in my backyard. And they've stayed there. No one, no one magically came and took them. Nobody really wants these old, you know, dirty, you know, mortar-filled bricks. Nobody broke into my backyard and, and took them, right? They've just stayed there. They linger. And guilt can be the same way for us. And this morning, I want us to say no to them lingering, I want us to say no to carrying them anymore. I want to remind us of last week, right? Remember, we talked about these three circles, the world that God made, his perfect design. And I'm saying God did not create us in his perfect design to carry these bricks. It's a load that we are not meant to bear. Uh, Not that it's not right that they've come into our life, but I'm saying that we shouldn't carry them or bear them. That's not God's perfect design. But ignoring God in his perfect design Sin leads us to brokenness. And brokenness, uh, you can define it, that we lie, cheat, steal. We make people feel guilty. We manipulate them through guilt. Those are all great examples of brokenness. Last week, we talked about, I'm just going to try harder. I want to get specific, though, into one way that we try to escape brokenness back to God's perfect design that is wrong and is broken and only leads us back into brokenness. And you know what it is? It is bearing that guilt, carrying it around with us. We think if I can just carry this with me for another week or another month or another year, then I'll be able to escape this brick that I'm carrying. There's no way. There's no way for us to carry these bricks, our guilt, and not land back in brokenness. Absolutely no way that we can do that. I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 27, if you haven't, where we're gonna look at someone who did not turn and follow Jesus, which which is the answer you're gonna find, right? There's the answer. Turn and follow Jesus, but we're gonna look at specifically someone who went through the process of realizing their brokenness, but failing to follow Jesus in that recognition, in that revelation of their life. Uh, you, you might know, uh, how many of you have uh, know uh, a Matthew in your life? How many of you? Okay. Matt, you know a Matthew? Great. I do too. All right. How many of you uh, know a Peter? You've got a, a Peter in your life. All right, great. This is good. Um, how many of you have uh, a Thomas in your life? My middle name is Thomas, so automatically you do, everybody. But maybe you have another one. Um, a Philip. Anyone? Best friend in high school, Philip. Okay, uh, a James. Anybody have a James? And uh, do we have a John? Anybody Anybody know a John? Great. Anybody know a Judas? Anybody? Yeah, and I don't know if this is just maybe um, Americans mainly, but um, you have to understand in Jesus' day, Judas was one of the most common names. One of the most common names. And yet what we have done is tried to separate ourselves from Judas as much as we can. Judas is a strong Jewish name. It was a good Jewish name. But it has a weight attached to it that we don't want to carry around, right? In fact, uh, Dante's Inferno, in the last level of hell, the, the lowest level of hell, reserved for traitors, we find in this fictional book that Judas is there. Judas is there, right? We wouldn't name our our children Judas. We we reserve that name for uh, heavy metal bands, right? Um, We don't name our kids Judas. We want a healthy level of separation between us and Judas. Well, we're going to talk about him and his story. I like what Pastor Roger shared two weeks ago. This kangaroo court has happened where uh, justice did not happen justice did not happen, we find the innocent were convicted, condemned, that that guilt was laid on them that was not theirs, as the religious leaders met in the middle of the night to condemn Jesus. But then what they do at the beginning of chapter 27 is they come together in the morning to have a more legitimate court, to make a more legitimate decision. And the truth is, we know that that's not true. What's happened is the plot to kill Jesus has happened in the night. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of justice, is this right or not? It was a matter of this is what we want to do, how do we do it? They decided it, committed to it, figured out how to do it, and then the next morning they carried it out. And so Matthew records that in these first two verses. But then in verse three, we hear a turn, a reversal in the story. And here's what this reversal serves to do it it serves to show us that Jesus is truly innocent. Because people who are wrong, who are truly guilty, all of a sudden see the light and they see their guilt and as they see their own guilt they see Jesus' righteousness and his innocence this is really interesting so look at me with verses uh, 3 and 4 it says this then when Judas i feel like i need to defend something by the way i feel like the esv needs a little defense i'm not going to do that this morning i'm not gonna, that's a that's a joke i love you Rulene. Verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Judas changes his mind. Something weighs heavy on him and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Okay, if there's a, a key phrase here. Innocent blood. If you write in your Bible, underline, circle that. Innocent blood. We know that Judas is the betrayer, but right here, he uses these very words to describe the one that he has betrayed. Innocent blood. Innocent blood. That's a key phrase we're gonna come back to. Judas, uh, whether he watched and saw the religious leaders convicting, condemning Jesus, Whether it was just that he heard the verdict and and what they were doing, it begins to weigh heavy on him what he did. So what happens here, though, is that Judas does not experience true repentance. This is not true repentance. You need to understand this. This is not Judas turning from what he did to Jesus, and that's very important. It's very clear, and Matthew makes it so, that he is not embracing Jesus' lordship, that Jesus has authority over him that he's looking to Jesus now. That's not true. You see, um, the one who betrayed Jesus realizes and confesses Jesus' innocence, but nothing more than that. Nothing more than that. Okay, the second thing that we see is that he gets no absolution of guilt. No absolution of guilt. Look halfway through verse four. The religious leaders, they said to Judas, what is that to us? See to it yourself, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. Mm. This is one of the hardest verses in the Bible for me, because because what I see is that, that Judas turned to the wrong person. God opened up his eyes to Jesus' innocence, but he turned to the wrong person. He turned to the people he committed the crime with when he needed to turn to the person he committed the crime against. Right? After he realized his own guilt, man, I've, I've committed sin against innocent blood. He turns to the people he committed the crime with and not the one who he committed the crime against. There's no absolution of guilt. Essentially, these religious leaders say, what's that to us that you're guilty? What's that to us? You've got to take care of this on your own. There is, I can almost find no better verse that literally says, put the bricks in your backpack and carry it yourself. This is the complete opposite of grace. This is saying... There's a line between us and you. You committed this, we didn't. It's your problem. Now, here's the irony of that. It's really not their problem, and we're going to find out later. It's not just Judas's problem. He's not the only one who's guilty. But he turns to the people he committed the crime with, and they say, your guilt is on you. Your guilt is on you. There's no forgiveness. There's no restoration. The guilt that Judas feels weighs on him even heavier After this conversation, after this word, Jesus' prophecy about Judas rang truer here than ever when he says, It would have been better for the betrayer had he never been born. And Judas takes his own life, he commits murder against his very own body. Now, I just want to say maybe you've heard from the Catholic Church that suicide is the unpardonable sin. I'm not saying that Judas is a Christian. Judas did not go to heaven. But suicide is not the unpardonable sin. The grace of Jesus and turning to follow Jesus means that we live in grace. What Jesus says about us. Not what others, not what we do in any moment of our life. But the forgiveness and restoration that Jesus gives us by grace, not even the final moment of our life can can define us over Jesus' grace when we turn and follow him. That's what grace, that's what gracious culture looks like. But I'm saying right here, Judas is not turning to follow Jesus. Judas just comes to a recognition of the brokenness that he's responsible for, that he betrayed Jesus now, uh, the, the third scene that we see is this, a refusal to receive the guilt-ridden money. And this is where things kind of turn, where I find it ironic the religious leaders say, hey, that guilt's on you. You know, they draw the line with Judas. We, we can't help you. We won't help you, Judas. It's in their refusal to receive the guilt-ridden money. Um, there's a word that I learned this week. Are you ready for a word? It's called... It's called, I'm going to mispronounce it too, by the way. But uh, it's called probity. Probity. We've got it. I think we've got a definition of it. Probity. Integrity and upright, uprightness, honesty. And, and here's what we find in the re- religious leaders. They defend adamantly their reputation, their external righteousness. But they have no clue what's going on inside of their own soul. Because what they point the finger to Judas about right here is actually what they are guilty of themselves. They want to come across as having integrity and honesty and uprightness, but the truth is that is not what is going on inside of their soul. They refuse the money. Okay, so get this. These religious leaders pay 30 pieces of silver to Judas, to hand Jesus over to them. Sneaky, underhanded, right? In the quiet, dishonestly, in darkness. They give that money to Judas, and Judas says, I want to return this. And they say, oh no, that's dirty money. (laughs) It's unclean. Well, you guys are the ones that gave it in the first place. You made it unclean in the first place by what you were thinking and had decided in your heart against Jesus. That's the irony of this. The irony of this. Uh, And then Matthew makes that clear for us. I call this the guilty answer. The guilty guilty answer. Look at verses 9 through 10. We're going to skip ahead to there. Oh, well, I'm going to start in verse 6. Sorry. Start in verse 6. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it is blood money. You could underline that too. Right? Judah's saying, I betrayed innocent blood. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, Now, you and I are kind of like, where is this going? What is Matthew piecing together? And it's kind of strange. Like, why is it important that we know there's a new burial place for people that don't have anywhere else to be buried? Why is that so important? Why is that detail in the Bible? Well, it connects to a prophecy in the Old Testament. Actually, a couple prophecies. Verse 9, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver the price of him on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Here's a prophecy. Now, I'll just tell you, it's pieced together. And, and it's actually coming from two different prophecies in the Bible. You're gonna, you're gonna wanna write this down. Jeremiah 19, one through 13. Jeremiah 19, one through 13. And the second is Zechariah eleven twelve 12 through 13. I think a lot of times people get the Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. And there's actually a question of, is Matthew misquoting the Bible here? Because most of the exact wording that he quotes is from Zechariah, but he gives credit to the prophet Jeremiah for this. And what I'm saying this morning, let's just be clear, he's quoting both of them. And, and in Jewish culture, if you quote or put a number of prophecies together together, you give credit to the greater prophet, right? So if Moses says something, and in the minor prophet, Malachi says something, when you quote it, you give credit to Moses, right? It's kind of like this. This is a, this is a funny one. This got me. Um, I like to say, when you ask me how I'm doing, I like to say, I'm doing better than I deserve, right? Have I said that to you before? Okay, so I like to say that. I like to say that. And you know what most people say? Oh, that's what that guy on the radio says. That talks about money. Gabe's trying to be like Dave Ramsey. And here's the truth. I am not trying to be like Dave Ramsey. <laughs> Trust me. I'm not. I'm not. I like some things about what he teaches, and I don't like a lot of things about what he teaches and what he represents. I actually say that because I, I read a book um, by a pastor that you probably don't know, and he was thinking of ways that he could encourage Christians in the life of grace, and that he could be a good witness in those everyday ordinary questions. And what's one question that, that both Christians and, and his neighbors, you know, who maybe um, weren't following Jesus yet, that they ask him, how are you doing And so he came up with that answer to describe the life of grace. I'm doing better than I deserved, so that Christians would understand I'm persevering in the faith. The life of grace is still sweet to me. Even on the hardest days, he could say that. But also for people to say, what do you mean by better than you deserve? That started a lot of conversations for me where I can talk about the life of grace, right? You think Dave Ramsey you're not thinking this author who dave ramsey is probably pulling in order to develop that answer does that make sense right here matthew matthew is quoting jeremiah because jeremiah is a much more well known even called a quote unquote major prophet whereas zechariah is a minor prophet that doesn't mean that his message was minor, it just means that what we have written from Zechariah is much smaller than what we have written from Jeremiah, right? You know, maybe you've tried to read through Jeremiah, like I have, and, and you get lost all the time, you're wondering what's going on, and, and you stop, and you put it down for months at a time. It's long, it's big, it's a major, major prophecy, well, I want to share how these two prophecies go together, and they make Matthew's point. And this is actually going to make a, a, a principle of Bible interpretation. When you are reading the Bible, there is one thing that is king for interpreting it. And if I go against it, and you hear me teaching against this, then you can know I'm wrong, right? And when you pick up on this, and you see this, you're going to have light bulbs pop all over the place reading God's word. This is what's king when you interpret the Bible. Context. What came before, what came after. I'm going to read two prophecies, and, and there are going to be st- like a dozen light bulbs that are going to go on in your head as I point out these prophecies in Zechariah and Jeremiah as you think through what we just read. Okay? okay so listen to this. Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah is told by God to go buy a potter's flask. All right, so here's like a clay pot. And then he's told to go pro- proclaim destruction and God's judgment against the people of Jerusalem. Like not Israel as a whole, not the, not the northern kingdom, but Jerusalem specific, one city And even within Jerusalem, go proclaim this to the leaders of Jerusalem. Who has just falsely convicted Jesus? The religious leaders in Jerusalem. You know, who just picked out uh, Peter's Galilean accent? The Jerusalemites, who speak very different than their Galilean cousins. Take this potter's flask, go proclaim this judgment, and break the potter's vessel in front of them as a metaphor, as an image of the destruction that is coming because they have ignored and rebelled against me. We've got the potter's field here, right? um, Verse 4, Jeremiah 19.4 says this. It talks about, you've circled it twice, the blood of innocence the blood of innocence, that's on their hands as leaders. It says this, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence, they have sold out to corruption. And Jeremiah is called the hard task of approaching this widespread corruption in the leadership in Jerusalem and vividly telling them about it right? I thought about making this the illustration today, not bricks, but bringing in a clay pot and just. Poof. But the last time I threw something down here, I, I got some good criticism. Probably wasn't right. So I left the clay pot at home, but, but that's what Jeremiah does. It's vivid. You can't ignore an illustration like that. That makes headlines. People talk about Jeremiah threw a pot down right at the leader's feet. He's saying that they're corrupt, right? This is a hard task that Jeremiah is given. He was hated for it. And then Jeremiah 19, 11 says this, that men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. And what is this place called? In verse one, it's declared the valley of slaughter. So you have a place that's a grave that is nicknamed the valley of slaughter. Here we have the field of blood. Matthew is connecting us to Jeremiah 19 in an obvious way but also Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13. Right here, the prophet Zechariah is dealing with a similar issue. The religious leaders of Israel, the spiritual shepherds, are not being good shepherds. They don't care about God's people. They don't care about what's good for them and what's going to feed them. Zechariah comes along, and he gets to be that example of, of a, true, a true shepherd of God's people that cares for them. And he leads and he is given 30 pieces of silver for his shepherding. Now, now here's, here's what uh, is hard to see. When he's given that 30 pieces of silver, it's not like you and I feel when we get our paycheck and we say, oh, I feel good, right? I put in a good two weeks, hard work, and here's reaping the reward. 30 pieces of silver was a slight against Zechariah, saying you're basically uh, slave labor. Here's a shepherd leader And these corrupt leaders are trying to get rid of him. Let's pay him his wages so he'll go away. And we're going to pay him a pittance of wages. And so this is what God says. Zechariah, you take those 30 pieces of silver and you walk in to the temple potter. The temple potter worked with clay but also was a metal worker. And you throw the silver that they gave you, those 30 pieces, you throw them to the clay potter. It's a very clear message. You've rejected God's true spiritual leadership. So here's some silver to go make the idol that you want. You go ahead and worship the God that you want. Here's your silver back. It was a picture of the idolatry, how the people of God had replaced God, His Lordship, His throne in their hearts with other things. And he did not like it. Both prophecies fit Matthew's point. That Jesus is innocent and righteous. And the reason why he is in the tragedy that he is is because of the corruption of leadership. The reason it happens the way it does is because of the corruption of leadership. It wasn't a misstep on Jesus' part. He is innocent and he is righteous. And yet he is willing to bear That guilt that we deserve. God's revealing right here a pattern of apostasy or unfaithfulness, a similar kind of unfaithfulness that you and I are going to deal with in our own heart. And right here, we get to see how this apostasy leads to destruction in Judas's life, that he's not valuing Jesus. Along with the religious leaders, he has rejected him, and it leads to a bitter and awful end so that you and I would look at Jesus in this terrible, awful situation, which all the apostles, all the apostles told the story of the gospel as Jesus being handed over to corrupt people. That was a big part to them of the gospel. It was an important part as we read through Acts, right? That he was handed over to corrupt leaders, and yet he was innocently condemned on our behalf. And so the point is this, when we see Jesus innocently condemned, we can say, that was so, so wrong. And yet he did that for me. And so I am not going to carry around my guilt. If Jesus is willing to take it on, albeit wrong. In this story, that he's innocent, he doesn't deserve these, but that he willingly, willingly does that, that means that you and I have to do a serious job of looking into our hearts and saying, what bricks, what guilt am I carrying around that's crippling me from life with God, that's paralyzing me from serving him the way that he wants to. What is it? Jesus was innocently condemned, and yet he willingly carries our guilt for sin so that you and I would never have to. We don't clear guilt by carrying it. We clear guilt the opposite of what Judas did. We turn to the one that the crime was committed against. I love, um, while we want to distance ourselves from Judas, I love what what Rob Sharp said, um, which he's not in here. Right, he's, he's teaching, yeah. Rob Sharp, but you can tell him I quoted him, all right? This is quote-worthy. When we were talking about the story of Judas betraying Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said this, We don't want to as Christians, but we should all identify with Judas. It was our sin that put him there. And we truly can. We did not do what Judas did, and yet we can identify with, my sin is the reason that Jesus suffered on his cross. Matthew wants us to see the folly of it so that we would say, I'm done carrying it around. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to turn from it. And so here's, here's something to think about. Waking up to our own guilt. Maybe this morning, God has opened your eyes into your heart to see your failures, to maybe see uh, some things you don't like about yourself and, and that you're condemning yourself for them. Maybe he's doing that. What do you do when God wakes you up to those things? What does it look like to trust Jesus with or in our own guilt? Uh, John Stott uses this illustration of it's like, it's like you're on a train, I love trains, by the way. You're on a train, and you're headed one direction. He said, when you wake up to your sin, your own sin, or your own guilt that you're carrying around, you get off the train. You get off of it. You realize, this is not where I want to go. As we look at Judas's life, the religious leaders, we say, that's more like me than I care to admit. I want to get off this train. That's a good thing. But that's what Judas does right here. He gets off the train. You and I in repentance must get on the other train going the opposite direction that points us back to Jesus to say he is the one that I can trust and follow, that his grace is always sufficient to remove whatever failure I am going to walk through in my past, present, or future you have to get off the train and head in the right direction that says, I'm going to trust Jesus' grace can work in me. There are two New Testament verses that I think of. The, the first is this, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance. Right? Judas' grief, but it wasn't a godly grief. It didn't produce repentance. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without any regret whereas worldly grief causes death. Romans 4.25 says this, Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses. Why was Jesus wrongly accused here? Because of my sin against God, my trespassing against his word. And so as we see Jesus betrayed right here and unjustly delivered up with a guilty verdict, You and I can think about our guilt and the weight of it. And we can truly imagine the spiritual reality gospel that Jesus is carrying our guilt, not his own, when the religious leaders say he's guilty. You and I don't have to carry it any longer. Don't carry the weight of guilt. You know, before we close this off, I also want to say, we also need to be careful if we are people of the gospel, people of the cross, then that means that we shouldn't be speaking to discipling people in such a way that we are literally just putting another brick in their backpack. We can do that. (laughs) You know, we talk about sin a lot here. But we always want to talk about it in a context of it's real, it's true. We don't want to just close our eyes or blindfold ourselves to it. But we always want to look to the one who carried it for us. That it's finished. Jesus' work is done. That we can put that weight aside. So I want you to think, in our conversations with people, are we putting bricks in their backpack to carry? Or are we pointing them to Jesus who carried them for them? And calling them to trust in him, walk with him, enjoy life with him. Don't carry the weight of guilt this morning. And the last thing is this. um, We deal with this as a church. If If you are dealing with suicidal thoughts, I want you to know our church is for you and here to support you. And your pastors and a lot of people in your community groups are ready for you to share with them that's where I'm at. That's what I'm struggling with. And we want to be a part of how God is loving you and caring you. So I hope that you trust us, that God's going to do that work and that he's going to use this church to help you. Come talk with us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you convict us in such a way that good things happen, that we don't have to carry guilt around You release us from it. You give us freedom. You give us joy to serve you. I pray that you do that. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.